Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Let's pray this morning before we come into the service. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, as always, to be in this space together, to sing praises to your name, to be reminded of who you are and what you have done. I pray for those who maybe are coming in here a little bit weary, a little bit heavy laden, maybe their heart is is feeling heavy. Lord, I pray in this space as we are reminded of who you are, what you have done, uh, that you are for us and not against us, that you love us dearly and deeply, that our hearts would be put at ease. And so we welcome your ministering presence. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Would you come and speak to us today by the words of, of Scripture? We ask this in your name. Amen. So when I was a kid, we had an advent calendar that we put up every year. Does anyone else still do that? Do you guys put up advent calendars? You guys? Nice. Yeah. It's like some people do it, some people don't. But when I was a kid, we had this advent calendar that my mom had made by hand. It was a sewing advent calendar. It was probably... I don't know, in my imagination, it's like as tall as me, but I don't know, I don't think it was actually that big. But it was pretty big, and it it was the last thing that we put up. It was handmade, we put it up on the wall, and... um and uh, then throughout December, uh, I remember this so distinctly. Every morning when you woke up, uh, you went up, and there was all these little pockets at the bottom, 1 through 24. And in each little pocket was a little handmade sewn ornament. And it had a little Velcro on the back, and there was Velcro on the Christmas tree advent calendar. And you take the little ornament out, and you'd stick it on the tree, and there's December 1st, December 2nd. And I remember as a kid being like, December is the longest month in the entire world. Like, <laughs> it will never come. And then you finally get to that time when you get to put the star on top of the tree, which means it's December 24th. And we always did that uh, before the Christmas Eve service at our church. And so you'd put the star on top of the tree. And as a kid, you're like, oh my goodness, it's finally, finally here. And so you're just waiting and waiting and waiting through Christmas. And then you're hoping as well, right? As kids, you're hoping that what you circled in the Sears wish book, does anyone remember, (laughs) right? You circle those little things. And you're like, it's like an 800-page book, and you find the kids section, and you're hoping that your parents will get you something that you circled, and not like the one year when I, the only thing I circled was a CD player, because I was like, that's all I want. Surely they'll get me that. It's within budget. It's just, that's the, I circled it multiple times, and nothing else. And then it was super funny. My sister got the CD player. She didn't even listen to music yet, and my parents were like, it was so funny to see the look on your face, and I was like, yeah, that's... Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure that it was. That's really great. Um, but as materialistic, you know, as, as kind of that childhood waiting and hoping might be, you're just waiting for, you know, the presents and you're waiting for the, the good meal. There's a little bit of materialism in that, but there is a picture in that of what Advent is really all about, what Advent is drawing us into, because Advent is the season of waiting and hoping. So today's the first Sunday of Advent, and we remember that in Advent, it's not yet Christmas. Advent is the time before the joyous birth. It's a time to remember the waiting of the world, a world that's waiting for hope, waiting for light to break into the darkness. Advent is the beginning of our Christian calendar. Did you know that? Advent's the beginning of the Christian calendar. And Advent reminds us that we begin our year with waiting and with hoping. 
Tish Harrison Warren puts it like this. She says, we begin our Christian year in waiting. We do not begin with our own frenetic effort or energy. We do not begin with the merriment of Christmas or the triumph of Easter. We do not begin with the work of the church or the mandate of the Great Commission. Instead, we begin in a place of yearning. We wait for our King to come. And as we begin our journey through Advent, I want to start us with a man who is used to waiting. This man has been waiting for years for certain dreams to come to pass. He had hopes, he had dreams, he had prayers, but the years keep going by and his hopes and dreams keep going unfulfilled. Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think what you're going to see in this man is a little bit of that heart sickness that's caused by a hope deferred. This man is a priest named Zechariah and we're introduced to him in Luke chapter 1. Oh, I didn't mark my page. I got to find it. Just give me a second. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 1, we start in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So Zechariah is a man who's been waiting and hoping his whole life for two things. One is told to us in this passage. He and his wife Elizabeth have been childless, and we know that Zechariah has been hoping and praying for a child. This is going to be revealed later in the story. Your prayer has been answered. He's been praying for a child. And the second thing that Zechariah would have been hoping for that isn't spelled out in our text, but we can kind of assume he would have been hoping for this because he's a priest, because he's a Jewish man, he would have been hoping for the coming of the Messiah, for the deliverer and the savior of the people of Israel. As a priest, this was a fairly common hope. You're studying the scriptures and you're looking at the promises of God and you're wondering, okay, when is the Messiah coming? Because if you think about the Jewish people at this point, they had been 400 years without a prophet or a true king. They had lost their king, they had lost their nation, they'd been conquered and they'd been scattered. They're now being ruled by Rome without and, and you think, you know, with, they knew this. They said, without a God-anointed deliverer, without a Messiah, there's not much hope for anything to change. So it was really a time of darkness for the whole land of Israel, with only a faint hope for the future. But they still hoped, because they knew that God was faithful to his promise. But it's been a long time. Author Daniel Darling kind of paints a picture for us of those 400 years of silence. He says, most of God's people were scattered among the conquering nations, some had come back to the land with Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. You can read about that in Nehemiah. The Syrians then came and savaged the land and the people. Then they had a revolution and their own Maccabees rose up and brought a temporary hope. But then they were crushed by Pompey the Great, the Roman who brought Israel under bondage once again. And so every day as the Jewish people walked to the temple, built of course by Herod, a ruthless and illegitimate king of Israel, they would see the Roman flag waving in the wind high above their land. And so Zechariah, as a priest, would understand this longing for the Messiah. Not only as a Jewish person longing for a return to their own nation and king, but as a priest yearning for God's promises to be fulfilled and to come to pass. And as a priest, he might have prayed with great longing, Oh Lord, will you return to your people? Oh Lord, would you come? We need you now more than ever. He's praying for a king, a deliverer, an anointed savior of the nation to come. And so we're introduced to Zechariah. He's a man who understands longing and waiting and having hopes and dreams seemingly go unfulfilled. Because it tells us that he and Elizabeth were both very old. 
And so with this detail, we can know that Zechariah has certainly given up on his hope that a child will be born. And I think it's so interesting that the angel's going to come to him and say, your prayer has been heard, but I bet you he hasn't prayed that prayer in a long time. Because what would be the point? She's past childbearing age. And so he knows that a child is truly impossible. And as to whether he's going to see a Messiah or a deliverer in his lifetime, well, that's looking unlikely as well as he gets older, as the years keep going by. Yet the very name Zechariah actually gives us a clue that God is working behind the scenes. Zechariah's name means the Lord recalled or the Lord remember. The Lord remembers or the Lord remembered. The Lord God has not forgotten Zechariah. He has remembered Zechariah just as he has remembered his people, the nation of Israel. The Lord will meet Zechariah in his personal tragedy and he's going to meet Zechariah and the people of Israel with this announcement of a miraculous birth. And Zechariah will see a glimpse of the glorious future that is to come. But I always like to immerse ourselves in the story. And it, we can imagine that Zechariah, at this point in his life, he's getting older. At this point in his life, he probably does feel a little bit forgotten. Maybe somewhat overlooked. Because for a couple to be barren in the culture of that day was actually a very shameful thing. It was embarrassing to not have any children, and it would lend itself to whispers about them. Things like, perhaps this is a judgment of the Lord upon them for something. Maybe there's some sin that they're, that's keeping them from receiving the blessing of children. And we know that some people probably do whisper or say certain things about them, because Elizabeth, after the, the miracle of conception in her old age, thanks God by saying this, In these days the Lord has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So certainly Elizabeth feels that disgrace, that shame. And this is why Luke is so careful to tell us that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are righteous. Their barrenness has nothing to do with sin or lack of faith. And so perhaps as you hear all this, you're thinking to yourself, you know, that's kind of like me. I've only heard silence. I've only experienced emptiness. Because you think about Zechariah, that, you know, his main things that he's praying for are going unfulfilled. Maybe you're thinking, I feel disgraced. I feel less than because of the things that have happened to me or not happened for me. And this story is going to remind us that even in silence and even in apparent emptiness, there is hope in our God who hears us and most importantly, remembers us. Dan Darling writes this. He says, Perhaps like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you are faithful, and you earnestly believe God, but all you hear in your suffering is his silence. No cure for your illness, no positive pregnancy test, no new job offers. From this story, you can be encouraged that the same God who remembered his people in Egypt and remembered his people in Judea and remembered his people on the cross has remembered you. God is not intimidated by the things that threaten you and is working to bring good from your pain. I think that's such a hard thing to think about, that God is working to bring good from our pain. And I don't think God is the author of pain, but I know he works to redeem it. And we know Zechariah has prayed about a child. As we see in the account Luke gives us, the angel who appears to Zechariah says, your prayer has been heard. And so here's what happens to Zechariah. We're going to pick back up in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. 
So one thing I want you to note right away is that through the years, God has been working to bring about the events at the right time with the right people. Now, it was a great honor for Zechariah to go in and burn incense in the temple, but it wasn't guaranteed as a priest that you would ever get to do this. R.C. Sproul kind of writes out the history of this, and he says, you need to understand that this time in Israel, there's about 18,000 priests divided among different groups. And every year, 14 of those 18,000, not 14,000, but 14 of those 18,000 would be given the privilege of offering incense before the Lord. So in 10 years, you would have 140 priests out of, out of 18,000 who would get to offer incense to the Lord. This meant that you might go your entire lifetime without ever offering incense to the Lord. This was a big deal. This was a great honor. And the vast majority of priests would never have the opportunity. And we read, you know, how did a priest get the opportunity for this task? Well, he wasn't elected by his fellow priests to do it. There wasn't a contest to determine who's the most righteous priest to represent us. That's not how they did it. What they did is they said, only God can choose who the priest is to do this. And so they had cast lots, which I don't know exactly how they did the casting of lots, but you can think of it basically as let's get all the sticks. One is cut shorter. Whoever gets the short stick gets it. That's, I mean, that's how they did it. And they said, but what we're going to do is we're going to trust that God is involved in this. We're going to trust that God is the one who orchestrates which priest goes in to offer the prayers of the people before the Lord. And so by Zechariah getting this, it would be a great honor, probably the defining moment in his life. And it would silence the whispers of those who maybe thought his lack of children was a judgment from the Lord. Because with the casting of the lots, they'd go, oh, the Lord has chosen Zechariah. He is a righteous man. It would be a great blessing for him. But as special as that day is, it soon becomes even greater because an angel appears. We can be so used to the Christmas story with angels popping up all over the place, right? Just, there's angels everywhere in the Christmas story. And we kind of just skim over that. Oh, yes, an angel appeared, right? Move on with the story. Angels are always coming up. But that's not how this, that's not typical. Remember that there's been silence for 400 years at this point, And now suddenly an angel appears. And Zechariah is immediately afraid. That's a very common experience to have when immensely powerful supernatural beings appear out of thin air. Uh, if you weren't afraid, there'd probably be something wrong with you, right? Like you're, you have no fear or something. And the angel reassures him, your prayer has been heard. And what prayer? The angel says, your prayer for a child has been heard. Yet there's a double answer to prayer here. For this child will not only be a blessing to righteous and faithful Zechariah and Elizabeth, but he's going to be a blessing to the nation of Israel, preparing the way of the Lord. The angel continues, telling Zechariah about this child. We come into the description as the angel says this. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in, spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We see then that through all the waiting and the hoping, and the years of silence and barrenness, God was working in the background all along, even though Zechariah never knew it. In all that waiting and hoping, and even the years of disappointment, God was still working. At the right time, and in the right place, Zechariah is chosen to serve incense in the temple, and God orchestrated the casting of the lots so Zechariah would have this encounter. And we might be tempted to ask, why the waiting? Why the many years of silence? Well, there is the matter of timing. 
This child is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And you think about who's bearing the Messiah. The Mary is going to bear him. And so she has to still be born and grow up and be eligible to have children. And so I think the takeaway for me from this, when I read this, I go, sometimes we assume that God is saying no to our prayers, especially if we've been praying them for, for a long time. And yet I think what this, this story reminds us of is sometimes God is saying, wait, the timing isn't right yet. And sometimes we might know as we look back why God seemed to wait so long, and most times we probably won't fully understand God's timing, but we are to remember that our God hears us and our God remembers us. For me, the most incredible part of the story comes next. It's when I read that righteous and faithful Zechariah displays incredible doubt. Zechariah responds like this. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Okay, just think about this for a moment. This reply of Zechariah to the angel reveals the deep amount of pain he has carried in his heart over the years of barrenness. His heart cannot hope anymore. Even an angel appearing to him out of thin air and telling him his prayer has been heard cannot undo the years and years of disappointment. His knee-jerk reaction is to respond to an angel, a supernatural being, yeah, right. <laughs> right? That's, that's what he's saying. Instead of rejoicing that his prayer has been heard, he says, yeah, right. Tell me another one. See, I think in that instant, when the angel says your prayer has been heard, you, your wife will bear a child, I think in that moment, Zachariah is replaying all those times he prayed, all those years of waiting, all those false hopes and maybes that never come to fruition, Years of disappointment and sorrow has made his heart sick. For hope deferred makes the heart sick. And he doubts the angel, which again is something that you would not think is possible. To doubt an angel, a mere mortal, doubting the words of a supernatural being that could wipe him from existence without breaking a sweat. But here I think we have a picture into where doubt often comes from. Whether it's doubt in God's goodness Doubt in God's ability to provide, doubt in God's caring of you, it often actually comes from deep disappointment, or sorrow, or trauma. There's this real life experience of not receiving what you desperately needed, of not having the life that you expected, or of something dark and terrible occurring to you or to someone you love. And then when someone says, God is good, like Zachariah, your prayer is heard, he immediately remembers all those years where the prayer was not heard or seemingly not heard. And when someone says to someone else, God is good, their immediate remembrance is when it seemed like God wasn't good. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred can make us skeptical of God's promises, of his goodness, and even of his very existence. Now I am sure that God knew about the doubt and the skepticism that would live in Zachariah's heart because of this. And yet Zachariah is still righteous. He's righteous, but he's heart sick. And what I think is so interesting here is that God honored him in that. God never forgot him. He never gave up on him. God met him even in doubt and skepticism. God was with him. He didn't say, oh, all those years of silence, you should have just trusted me. You should, you should, just, you should just be, you know, just know that I'm going to do it. He understands the human condition. He knows that when a man is old and his prayers have seemingly gone unanswered, he's going to have heart sickness. He's going to have doubt within him. So when we encounter people who doubt, the skeptics of belief, I think we often think that people just don't want to believe. 
And sometimes that's true. Sometimes people just want to live life their own way and they know that faith is going to change things and they just don't want to believe. But often, often people don't believe in God's existence or in his goodness or in his provision because life experience has seemingly proven time and time again that there is danger in hoping or that hope leads to disappointment because hope deferred makes the heart sick. I had a really weird encounter one time that led me to thinking about doubt in a new way. I'd been a pastor in Drumheller for maybe two or three years. I think it was about three years. And I went to the, the Friesen Brothers store uh, to get lunch. And they had a little sitting area where you could sit down and eat your lunch. And that was my plan. I was going to get some lunch and sit down in the seating area uh, to eat. And when I went to sit down, this guy in a really aggressive, you know, angry sounding way said, Hey, are you that new pastor at the Alliance Church? Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to have this conversation. Like, I don't know what he's going to say. And, and then he just kind of like, he just launched into like very forcefully telling me how much he did not believe in God, which is just a really weird experience to have when you're just trying to eat lunch. And, and you don't know who this person is at all. I've never seen him in my entire life. Like, I have no idea who you are. And I don't remember if I asked him why he didn't believe in God or if he just launched into the explanation. But at one point in his kind of diatribe, he said, I would never believe in a God who would let my daughter die in a car accident. And I don't remember how old his daughter was. I, I feel like in my memory that, that there was some allusion to her being in her like late teens or early 20s, her whole life ahead of her. And I don't know what triggered the guy that day. Maybe it was close to the day his daughter passed. I don't know. But since that time, I've, I've actually heard of other people I've had conversations with other people who they doubt God's existence or they doubt God's goodness, not because they just want to live life on their own terms, but they go, the pain I've experienced is so deep. How can I believe in a God of love when he let this happen to me, when he let this happen to my son, when he let this happen? And sometimes people don't disbelieve God's existence, but they stop believing in his goodness or his ability to provide because years of waiting or countless times of being disappointed, leaves their hearts sick and filled with doubt. And again, I think we see this with Zechariah. He's never stopped believing in God. He's a righteous and faithful man, but his heart is sick. The doubt is deep. He has skepticism. Think of this. He's literally talking to an angel, a miracle all on its own, and he cannot believe what an angel of the Lord is saying to him. He goes from surprised and fearful to doubtful. Again, I know sometimes people doubt God's existence because they just want to live life on their own terms. But when I think about this count of Zechariah, it reminds me that often doubt, disbelief, and skepticism is linked to real-life events of tragedy or sorrow or hopes or dreams that never seem to come to pass. And so it reminds me, and, and hopefully you, to have grace and mercy for those who claim to have no faith or no belief in God. I bet you most people that claim that, if you dig a little deeper under the surface, you'll find that there's something in their life that they go, I cannot believe in a God who would let this happen. I can't believe in a God who would do this or not do this. And so it reminds me to listen well and then respond with wisdom. Now the angel, because he's an angel, uh, comes back a little bit forceful. The angel said to him this. You're going to pick up in Luke again. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. As Dan Darling puts it, he says, God loves to hear our doubts. 
He loves to field our questions and even to hear our anguished cries. God delights in, in just being the God who hears and the God who remembers. But it is that outright disbelief that becomes a sin, this complete unwillingness to trust that God can do the impossible. And so Zechariah's punishment is to be struck mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And in a way, I think this affliction was less a punishment and more a gift. To not speak, to sit in silence before God, to quiet the chattering of of your soul and the circumstances and just be. And also it's going to be a sign that this isn't just some kind of weird quirk of nature that an old woman conceives a child. It's going to be a sign to the whole community something is happening here. When he goes mute and then on the day of John's birth he's going to speak, it's going to be a sign to the community God has done something. And so in a way this is a work God seeks to do in the heart of all of us. And Advent is a good time to practice silence and to sit and to listen and, and to be countercultural. Christmas is such a busy season. Like the days leading up, technically Advent is such a busy season in our culture. Parties and shopping and all of these things, and I get it. It's good and it's fun. And yet there's a countercultural thing that we're called to, which is to be sitting in silence, listening to the voice of God, putting away our devices and those things that so often keep us from faith. Sometimes God has to quiet us so that we can hear him. And sometimes we have to be still so we can see him move. And sometimes our words and our busyness get in the way of our faith. They form a cynical shell around our hearts. Now, of course, this story ends with great joy and great delight for both Zachariah and Elizabeth and really for their whole community and everyone who knows them. Hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. This child to be named John is going to fulfill the prophecy that we heard about from Malachi, preparing the hearts of Israel for the coming Messiah. After 400 years of silence and waiting, but here's what's so interesting to me again. This hope we now know is coming soon, but it still doesn't come immediately. We're still 30 years or so away from the Messiah, Jesus, coming into his full ministry. We still need to wait for John to grow up. And so once again, I'm struck with this theme of waiting and hoping in this Advent season. Advent and the stories that we read in Scripture through Advent remind us that the world is actually a pretty dark place. There is sorrow and there's grief and there's loss and there's brokenness, and so our hope ultimately cannot be in this world. If our hope is in this world or for the things of this world, we'll ultimately be disappointed. And Advent kind of reminds us of the past, so we, like ancient Israel, continue to place our hope in a God who hears us, remembers us, loves us, and promises us a life to come. And I don't know where you are in your season of life. Maybe you're like Zachariah and Elizabeth before the angel. You're hoping, you're waiting, but it's been a long time of waiting. Doubt is starting to creep in, and you're questioning what God could possibly be doing. You're even becoming skeptical of God's ability to provide, or his goodness, or his power, or his promise. And so I just ask the Holy Spirit today to to remind us that our hope and our faith is not misplaced even if it seems like it's been years. To borrow from Tish Harrison Warren, she says, Advent is a season of hope, but hope is not to be confused with privilege, peppiness, or a denial of just how broken things really are. We cannot embrace true hope without also acknowledging the pain and sinfulness of the world and of our own lives. Christian hope is not a way to minimize the facts of reality. It is a conviction about the ultimate outcome of history, which is not in jeopardy. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close here. Advent reminds us that we are still a people waiting. 
waiting with hope, waiting for our ultimate hope, the return of the King Jesus, the putting right of all things that are wrong. And so no matter where you are in your season of life, maybe you feel you've been waiting in the darkness and in the silence for far too long. Again, I pray that you would remember that God is faithful to his people and God is faithful to his promises. He does remember us. Yet I want to remind you, and I I tell people this sometimes when, when they're walking through some kind of deep tragedy, our ultimate hope is not for this life. Our ultimate hope will be fulfilled in eternal life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And one day, one day all of our hopes will be fulfilled. When we eat from the tree of life in the restored and renewed creation, where God will dwell with us forever, no tears, no sorrow, no sickness, no death, just our ultimate hope fulfilled as we live the life we are always created to live, God with us forever and us with God. And so just wait, just hope, a hope that is not misplaced, a hope in a faith that is real and a hope in a God who hears and remembers his people. Just wait a little longer and all shall be well. All shall be well and all manner of things will be well. That is the hope of Advent. We have hope right now because Christ has come. We have hope for the future because Christ has come. That is what Advent brings us to. Our hope is not misplaced. We may wait, but we wait with hope. And our hope is a firm foundation. Let's worship together.